Book Guys show is brought to you by Audible. Go to audibletrial.com slash bookguys and get a free book just for trying them out. It's awesome. Apparently we do this every week. This is episode 72 of the Book Guys show. We are back and I've never seen so many people on the Skype screen at one time and it all works. Now I jinxed it. My name is Paul Alves, also known as Paul the Book Guy. Joined today as always by the one and only Professor Alan. How you doing, sir? Hello, hello, hello. Very well, thank you. And you? Uh, a new webcam I see and uh, I'm assuming that your skin is not orange. There you go. What is it with default webcams on laptops, and even on the iMac? Like, it makes you look like orange. Weird. Simpsonizes you, kind of. You know? Also joined by Sir Jimmy. How you doing, Sir Jimmy? Doing great. Uh, happy to have such a full panel tonight. That's exciting. It's fantastic. And uh, Father Robert's going to join us later. He's busy, you know, he's busy doing the Jesuit thing now that he's one step closer to, you know, to being the Pope. <laughs> with, the, of course, the new Pope being in a Jesuit. Uh, we're joined today by all the way from Scam School, NSFW, the Twit Network. He's everywhere. The one and only Mr. Brian Brushwood. How are you, Brian? Welcome back. Dude, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for guys uh, for having me back. I said for guys. Thank you for being guys and not That's ladies because right. <laughs> I don't ever talk books with ladies. That's my rule. Yeah, none of those book girls. Poo. <laughs> and also joining us today all the way from... The Long Box Graveyard! Mr. Paulo Carter, how are you, sir? How's it going, book guys? Very well, very well. We are back again, gentlemen. 72 episodes. We're still here. They haven't kicked us off YouTube yet. I don't know why. We're, we're getting those notices. We're, we're close to being kicked off. But we're here. And we're going to talk to Paul. We'll start off talking to Paul from Long Box Graveyard. Uh, Tell us, what is Longbox Graveyard? What a great name. <laughs> well, uh, Longbox Graveyard is my comic book blog. It's about um, uh, comics from the 70s and the 80s. I started it about two years ago just as a, a means of keeping myself on track as I was finally organizing this accumulation that I'd hauled around like a hump for the last 30 years. Uh, and instead, it's, it's taken off into a, into a weekly blog that looks at mostly Marvel and DC comics from uh, the 70s and the 80s. The good stuff. The so good is a long box, is that what I see on like the Big Bang Theory where you see the guys all thumbing through and flipping the, the books back and then they pull one out, need it, got it, all that? It's a long, white cardboard box, generally acid-free if you're really uh, you know, a hardcore collector, and it keeps your books safe. Although Sir Jimmy last week was telling us about some acid that... Uh, you know, yeah, you drop it. You, just... <laughs> you see all the Superman comics you want. Yeah. Acid-free. Acid-free, right. So the long box graveyard. We're talking uh, 70s. Uh, do you go into the 80s? Do you mostly 70s comic books? I go in the 80s. You know, uh, in, in my very first uh, blog, I said that the golden age of everything is 12. Uh, you know, it's not an original sentiment, but I find it to be true. So I started reading comics in 1974. I was 12. You can do the math, figure out how old that makes me today. So I think right about when you're 12, 13, 14, 15 years old is really when you imprint on the things you're going to love for life. So that period of time, 74 to 85 or so, really corresponds with when I was most heavily into comics. And now I'm looking back on, on them as an adult to see how, how they hold up and what they've meant to me in my life as I've grown up. What's your favorite, uh, favorite comic? Oh, gee, you know, it's too many to list. When, when you collect long enough, you end up probably gravitating towards characters more than comics. 
Uh, I've always been a Captain America fan. I love Thor. Uh, more recently, I loved uh, Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, but you know, here I am thinking that's a recent comic, and that was 1985. So I'm I'm pretty firmly stuck in the past. You did a great a great uh, blog and uh, about uh, about the Dark Knight, but you mentioned Captain America and Thor. What did you think of the Avengers? Well, I thought Avengers movie. was terrific. Uh, you know, talk about a degree of difficulty uh, getting all those costume characters standing around in a set talking to each other and not looking like total fools. That's a gigantic cinematic achievement. <laughs> Uh, and there's a lot of action. My family was just watching it last night, and the, the, you know the action sequence in the third act um, might be the best action ever put to film. Certainly in the CG era, I thought it was a tremendous, uh, tremendous picture. I really enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to Iron Man three. Uh, I just heard recently that when they first test screened that movie, they all looked at each other and said, "What the hell are we gonna do now with Avengers two? Like we just put it, <laughs> it's done." Like. How do we Dude, that's this? that's huge because Iron Man three is a weird one in that it's uh you know it's it's uh you know we played this uh this movie draft every summer where we basically play fantasy football only we play it with the movie grosses and uh, we got a lot of wild cards this summer Iron Man three is definitely a wild card because while it is um it's hot on the heels of Avengers two it's also the third movie in a franchise where the second movie really kind of took a dump. It was, it was, they had, they had a, a rough second act in that series and they have a change of director. So it'll be interesting to see if it's regarded more as I, I, I figure it's pretty much a de facto Avengers two at this point. I mean, there's, um, Avengers just knocked it out of the park in so many different ways. And it did what I thought would have been impossible, which is to take a very, very, very comic booky, uh, property and uh, and not make it look silly on the big screen. Well, Paul, I hey, think, let me ask you I, a question. As a guy who really has delved into comic books, like in and out. When I was a kid, I had some, and then when I was in college, like when Spider Man twenty ten or Spider Man twenty ninety nine came out, I started collecting those, and and I, I have like the first fifteen issues. But I had all these comic books. From when I was, you know, a, a young kid, I was born in '73, and so like '70, when I was like seven, eight, nine years old, I had some comic books that people gave me, and I kept, and they were in real nice shape. But people said they were just crap. Like that was like the, it wasn't the, it was like the, you know, the the rust age of comics, and that's like when you were really into it. So I, I guess it's all perspective uh, when the golden age of comics really was. What's your thoughts on that? Well, golden age is 12, right? So when, when you were 12 in the, in the 90s, those are the books you really, you really loved, right? That's what you imprinted on to you. That's what comics No, no, I wasn't 12 in the 90s. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, didn't, I, you broke up a little bit. Um, oh, no, I, you know, I mean, you're I, just, about, I never, never really grew up. <laughs> Fair enough. And that's, that's a good problem to have, I think. You know, comic books in the 1990s, um, that's the first time that money really came into the comic book business. That's the first time that um, creators really started to earn serious cash, and it's the first time that books were being published and sold in uh, units of a million or more. That really distorted and changed the business quite a bit, and of course there was a huge crash in the business uh, in the middle of the 90s that wiped out two-thirds of the comic shops in, in North America. The business has never come back to where it was at that time. There's a lot of money being made, but it wasn't necessarily a peak for, for quality, although you know you can find select books in that era, as in any era, that were superior. And, and you can find so many other books in the 25 or 50-cent bin today for, from that yeah. area. 
Well, that's well, the I'll thing is what... that those those nineteen ninety books were printed in you know they were sold as collectibles, but they were printed in dump loads versus books from earlier eras, which were you know weren't esteemed as collectibles, often were thrown out. Uh, so they're they're more rare. Generally, any book after nineteen eighty seven or so is is going to be uh, not very valuable as a collectible just because of the numbers in which they were printed. That's right uh, along the lines with baseball cards. Eighty in nineteen eighty eight. It was the first set of baseball cards I ever collected. I collected the whole series, and then the beginning of the that's right when they went to hell. I, I had a question for you, Paul. Just you on your uh, on the blog, uh, two of your most you said most visited, most popular uh, entries had to do with some pronunciation. Is that right? How to pronounce? <laughs> yeah. I had to pronounce dark, certain character dark, names. Yeah, dark uh, yeah, side so, and dark side and and uh, the submariner. I think were two most recent. It's uh, again, it's a problem. You know, if it's a problem, it's a problem that older comic fans have because we grew up in this era where there was no animation, there were no movies, and the only way you heard these characters' names was in your own head. So if you didn't know how to pronounce them, you may grow up thinking of them being one way and not another. Readers more recently have grown up with animation, so it isn't as, uh, as controversial, but I did get a lot of hits on the blog the last couple of weeks on these, uh, you know, these silly fanish debates about how to say the names of popular comic book characters. It, it's a problem throughout uh, <laughs> comics and, and audiobooks. Like when, we, when we were talking to uh, Scott Brick, he did mention, I just happened to have in my hand, that uh, speaking with Ray Bradbury, hey, it's, it's Fahrenheit 451, not 451. Mm. I forgot which author told Brick, he said, you know, hey, don't say 451. Bradbury hates that shit. <laughs> so he knew not to say it's 451. Uh, yeah, and, and some of these things are made up, so you, you don't have uh, the phonetic, uh, you know, the pronunciation in the dictionary. Well, and there, there's also, there are other authors who very pointedly refuse to engage in it. I know that a lot of people have asked George R. R. Martin how to pronounce several of the, you know, and he's got weird names on a lot of his characters, and he says, you know, it's pronounced however you picture it in your mind. And it, it's led to confusion because for the first three books of the Song of Ice and Fire series on audiobook, you have Roy Dotrice very consistently pronouncing all the names one way. And then uh, uh, he did not do the fourth book, A Feast for, a Feast for Crows. They had, um, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, something Lee uh, come in and, uh, and, and to me, mispronouncing all the names. And then now you have this third vector where, where now that there's a very popular, very well-executed television show where they change the, the pronunciation again so that now when the fifth book came out, Dance for Dragons, they got Roy Dotrice again, but he altered a bunch of his pronunciations to match the television show as well. So uh, it's like, it's clear there's no consensus. And when the author himself says, I don't know, whatever you want, it's like at some point you're like, what does it matter? It's the slimy guy with the mustache. That's, his, that's who you're thinking of. Well, yeah, I expect over time those television pronunciations will become canonical. But I think uh, Mr. Martin is wise to stay away from getting into those Spanish debates. As a fan of his work and of, of his series, the more he stays away from debates, the more he actually writes to, to finish those books. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a good thing. So, so Paul, where can folks find the, uh, the Longbox Graveyard? What's your, what's your website address? You can find me at www.longboxgraveyard.com. There's a new blog published every Wednesday. Fantastic. Do you do a weekly kind of thing? Yeah, I've, I've hit every week. For the, uh, just today, we published our 92nd consecutive blog every Wednesday. Uh, you know what? You, this is a time vampire. 
You just ruined my whole night. That's it. I'm going to be on your blog for hours on end. <laughs> well, you're spend. welcome to. I, I hope you will. And you know, please leave a comment. Uh, one of the things I'm proudest of with Longbox Graveyard is it's developed a small but enthusiastic community of of like-minded uh, comic book geeks that are happy to share their opinions. We have uh, some lively debates there. So I hope you all become a fan and and maybe leave us a comment. That'd be great. Absolutely, love to get involved. The top ten Spider-Man battles. I could spend a couple hours just reading that. There you go. <laughs> Hey, uh, Paul, you're going to stick around with us? We're going to talk some more comics, some comic book news. I know Professor Allen's got some more questions for you about the Longbox Graveyard. Will you stick around for the whole show? Great. be my pleasure. Thank you. Right on. And, of course, joining us as well, uh, Brian Rushwood, all the way from scamschool.com. How are you, my friend? Oh, dude, uh, doing very, very well. You guys caught me on a good night. Nobody home. The kids are out. We got three kids now. So they're all off at a soccer game. So I'm playing hooky as a dad, hanging out with you guys. <laughs> I know you've got some news for us today. You've got uh, uh, scam school news coming up. Oh, print. yeah. Well, uh, you know, last time, uh, or a couple times ago when I visited you guys, we were talking about releasing scam school book one on ebook and then book two on ebook. Uh, based almost entirely on the success of the ebooks, uh, we. We, I signed my first actual publishing deal with an independent publisher. Uh, Skyhorse Publishing out of New York is putting together the physical copy of the book. And right before we went live with the show, we, uh, we were talking about what a different process it is to deal with grownups. You know, in the world of e-publishing, you can have an idea and just run off half-cocked and uh, sort of throw stuff together. And if you don't like it, you know, just throw a picture in over here. And if the formatting, oh, this sentence is too long, it runs onto the next page, you could just rewrite the sentence or whatever. But man, when you're dealing with the, like a grown-up organization, uh, it's it's like they're all like, well, is this the final text? I was like, what does that mean, final? We'll just change whatever's wrong. And they're like, no, that's not how grown-ups do this. <laughs> you need to, you know, it's like if you want something, you type it all out and you say, insert photo here, this goes here. You 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 list everything and then we take it and do all the work. So it's like it's a bit of retraining to actually learn how grown-up professionals uh, work in the publishing world. But it's also very, very exciting. Uh, we should hopefully have everything finalized within the next month and uh, have physical copies of Scam School Book 1 uh, coming out soon. Uh, there's a lot of really great things that we were able to do as workarounds. Originally, they're like, well, a lot of your book is videos and, and audio commentary. You can't put that into a book. And I was like, aha, but you can. So we're, we're going to put uh, QR codes throughout the entire thing. So if you have your smartphone, you're able to just ping it and then boom, you're listening to me talk to you or you're seeing the actual execution of the trick. So it'll be interesting to see how many of those features get used on a physical print edition. You know, that works really well, the QR code. I, I read, I forget the title of the book, but it was... Uh... Uh, Bill one of Bill Cosby's latest. He mm -hmm. did that. He he uh, populated with uh, QR codes. It was kind of neat, you know, the whippity wobbity, you know, little Jello pudding ad here and there, or whatever. It was great. So did it, it really? It really linked to like a Jello pudding ad. You're able to see it? No, no, <laughs> just threw that. That'd in. be amazing. <laughs> no, but every, everyone's got one of these in their pocket. So you know, you're, yeah. you're you're reading the book and okay, click on the QR code. Hey, you got the best of both worlds. Well, and when you uh, uh, when you set your mental index to like this is how I will experience this book. Once you get over that hump of installing Red Laser on your iOS device, it's amazing how fast and easy it is to just hop from you know you you have three paragraphs describing what this commercial was like that someone did thirty years ago. But meanwhile, you just pop it and you can actually see it. Uh, you know, it 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 reminds me of. 
I, I want to say it was like, like Fisher Price or someone had these books back in the early 80s where um, there was vinyl little records embedded yes. on the actual page. You had a little player that you would set on it. And so you would you would read the text and you'd set the player on it and it would spin around and actually read the vinyl on there. It's a little bit like that for the 21st century. Every time you hear R2-D2 make this noise, turn the page. Yes. <laughs> Those were awesome. <laughs> Now, 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 Brian, I know you didn't do this, but how far are we away from a book with 25 QR codes and five of them are actual ads? You know, actual oh commercials gosh. for another, you know, spo this book sponsored by Coca-Cola. What? Tell me this is a thing. <laughs> did somebody else, did wow. you just come up with the most brilliant idea ever? I'm patenting so. that right now. Dude, this is huge. This is a great idea. I'm, I'm totally down for this. In fact, we did think about uh, right now, everything links directly to uh, YouTube videos for everything. So it's like uh, there's a YouTube video uh, that's nothing but the audio commentary for this chapter or a demonstration of the effect or whatever. If I was really one of those marketing wizards, all of the embedded QR codes would go to like gateway forwarding things where they could forward you straight to the YouTube videos or they could forward you to a special page that encourages you to sign up for my newsletter to get side sauce on whatever. But, uh, but even that was a little bit too marketing slimy for me. <laughs> you know, At least in the seen... About the Author page, you can have those links, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And we've Book seen a Brian, product placement in books, Brian. We've seen like, uh, you know, people... Their characters happen to, you know, get into a Ford Mustang because Ford has paid them or whatever product. Pick a pick a product. Uh, we've seen the opposite where uh, what we've run into where we can't play the Iron Man trailer, God forbid, uh, with books. Even mentioning a song, you can't do that without paying a royalty to the song owner. Stephen King had to pay a royalty to uh, the Beatles to uh, incorporate Hey Jude into the Dark Tower series. It's the most bizarre thing where well, it, 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 but these these are these are situations that we've already seen in first you know movies and then television and it, it's kind of surprised me that it's taken this long to get to books now it's still there are still freedoms that you have in books that you don't have in any other medium. And, and the best example is, I'm, I'm sure you guys have read uh, Ernie Klein's Ready Player One. Like there, that is, that is on the face of it, an unfilmable story because like you, you, you can't get all of these studios to agree to allow Ultraman to be battling someone who's in an X-Wing fighter while the DeLorean right. from Back to the Future is <laughs> flying all around or whatever. Uh, but you can say these things and you can tell the story, especially in the context that uh, that he does it. And you can't it's 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 kind of the similar thing. There was an advertisement 20 years ago. I want to say it was for Miller Lite where they were saying like radio is better than television because on television we can't show you a naked woman. But on radio, if we say a naked woman <laughs> brings you a Miller Lite, you're already imagining it. And so it's like there's something uh, – you still have that freedom in the world of books right now. Well, Brian, I, you know, Ready Player One, yes, unfilmable right now with all the licensing issues. But give it 10 years. Disney will own all those rights. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Which, for the record, if Disney keeps up their track record, I'm okay with. <laughs> Disney made possible the Avengers. 
the discussion is over, right? Disney took over Marvel. All the comic book uh, folks like me are like, Disney, Marvel, they're just going to screw everything up. They're going to put Mickey Mouse in it. And instead, what did they gave us? They gave us Iron Man. They gave us Captain America. They gave us Thor. And then they made the freaking Avengers. If they could do anything close to that in the Star Wars universe, I'm totally happy. So far, they're batting a 1,000 in my book. Hey, you know what? I don't think of them as evil Disney. They seem to be able to let uh, creative people just do what they do. Uh, same thing they did when they bought Pixar. They didn't go in there and take it apart. They left it the way Steve Jobs had it, you know, back in the day. They left those people there, let them keep doing what they're doing, and uh, brought in uh, fans of Marvel to actually make a Marvel movie. And many yep. Marvel movies now that I think all have been fantastic. Iron Man 2, like you said, a little weak. But they'll make up for it in 3. Talking about so. your, you're talking about rights, there's a uh, supposedly a terrific documentary called Los Angeles Plays Itself, which is basically uh, a tour around Los Angeles showing where famous, um, you know, famous movies were shot and then showing clips of the movie. And it, you know, it's a mo it, it is a film that can only be played at special screenings in colleges because there are you know, hundreds of movies that have you know, the clips of hundreds of movies are part of that documentary and therefore it can never be you know the rights issues are so incredibly tangled this is the kind of thing we talk a lot on frame rate because so many of um, the things we hate about the current media structure are just entanglements of previous uh, commitments and the uh, the the politicization of piracy uh, the fact, you know, uh, when I was a kid, piracy was a civil offense. If if you pirated someone's stuff, they had the right to sue you. But the idea of sending someone to jail for pirating a thing was just anathema. It was crazy talk. Um, but now we're seeing, obviously, you know, deeply entrenched political powers and billions of dollars going into lobbying in order to make it an actual crime to borrow someone else's work. So we have this weird spot where all of a sudden you you have the most restrictive time in human history, uh, or certainly in American history, as far as media rights and ownership uh, in using someone else's content to create something new. But you also have this generation of millennials who are doing everything from creating music. If you ever check out uh, uh, Pogo's work with it, where he chops up bits and pieces of, uh, of, of, of Disney movies and make songs out of them or whatever we have this entire generation growing up in remix culture this is a generation of kids who don't have access to accordions or the skills to play the drums but you know what they do have is they have they have a bootleg copy of of soundforge and they have the ability to 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 use garage band they have mouses and they and they've got all the media that's out there on the internet that they can cut and chop and paste together to genuinely create new things and so Artistically, this is a very exciting time. Unfortunately, this entire generation, in order to make their art that will define the next 20 years of music and television and sound, they have to break the law to do it. And unfortunately, it creates this culture, this underground mentality of, uh, of like, yes, we're going to do it. We're not going to charge for it because we'll get arrested. Also, here's my donation spot on PayPal. So it's like we're almost – in some ways, it's pure and honest because you have people making art – for the value of the art uh, and, and accepting donations. But on other, on other ways, it's, it's, it's completely offensive to me that these are people who are creative and talented and wonderful and they live in a society where the only way to make money using their talent is to be a criminal. Yeah. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, we have a lot of Doctor Who uh, fans that, that you know watch the show. Uh, there's a guy on Reddit who he took all the classic episodes. He's going one by one through them, and if you watch some of the classic episodes, they're slow. They're you know you're looking at 1950s, 60s. They're slow. The pacing. I mean, people will be having dinner and it'll be like a you know shot of the plate for like five seconds. So this guy's done is he's trimmed the episodes down, some of them by half, by cutting out all these lulls and you know establishing shots that go on for thirty seconds and whatnot, and they're fantastic. But the BBC will never ever release it. No. Although they should take his work and reproduce it in high quality shot by shot, because and sell it. Well, you can squeeze a lot it. more commercials in. <laughs> That's right. It brings it all back to life, doesn't it? You know, I um, in in my secret identity, I make uh, iPhone apps. So I've actually got a dog in this fight. When you're talking about uh, piracy and and digital rights, um, in fact, just this week, I got a letter from the FBI informing me that I'm a victim of a federal crime. And uh, you know, they were they were kind of beating their chest about how they'd shut down this pirate site that had some of my games on it. Uh, you know, it doesn't have a material effect on my business, but I guess that's good news. I think the issue is, I think it's primarily a social issue. I think there needs to be a consciousness-raising effort on behalf of the artistic community to speak to the fans, to help them to understand that compensating an artist for their work is the right thing to do. You may not always be able to do it, but just like you leave a tip when you're at a restaurant, right? You, we, we, somewhere in the, in, the, in the last generation, it became okay to take things without paying for them. And we're not asking that you pay a lot for them. I mean, I make apps that cost a dollar, and those are stolen from me. Um, we're not asking that you pay a lot, but if just a few people pay a little, it enables this gigantic ecosystem that can bring all this entertainment into, into our lives. And then on the flip side of it, as far as, as far as artists that are sampling existing works and using them to create a derivative work like you described with, with Doctor Who, I think that's tremendous, and I think it enhances the brand. And I bet you if you went and you, asked, and, and you talked to uh, you know, Stephen Moffat or any of the guys that are running Doctor Who right now, they're probably watching that stuff and think it's great. But their hands yeah. are tied by BBC lawyers because of the way the law is set up. They're not allowed to allow that to go out because it will weaken their defense of copyright when something more severe happens. But I, I really think the key is to raise consciousness on behalf of the audience so they understand that there are real people behind the creation of this art, real people who are putting real money into the creation of the, of the entertainments that suffer genuine material damages when things are taken without compensation. Uh, the good news is I think that's happening. I think that's not a, a pipe dream or, or being, you know, or a Pollyanna uh, attitude to have. I think you, when you look at things like, um, uh, now granted, someone like uh, Louis, Louis C.K., who uh, recently funded his own special and put it out DRM free for you know uh, basically asking what five dollars or something ridiculous and then is able to blow up and get a million dollars when you see somebody like uh, Radiohead saying pay what you want for the album and then they just have it be a massive success I think that we have uh, in general I think the kids are all right in that and I mean that morally like they're starting to understand that yes there was a time when there was a morally bankrupt institution running the music business where artists would pour their hearts out and they would have these usurious contracts that were, you know, I, I think MTV did a thing where they broke down A Tribe Called Quest's uh, first album and showed how, how even though it was a multi-platinum seller, they, they, they got down the pie to like $80,000, went to the band, split four ways, 
you had twenty thousand dollars a piece, and it was just it, it's that anger that fueled this whole stealing music concept. But now I think we're seeing the backlash behind that. Now I think we're seeing people who uh, are you know support the artist, uh, but also support. Uh, you know, understand the inefficiency of the way things used to be and understand that we're not in that world anymore. We're in a world now where uh, somebody like Girl Talk is uh, does nothing but crazy mashups, 80s, like like uh, modern hip hop lyrics fused against uh, 80s rock anthems and uh, uh, totally illegal. We're talking like 150 different samples that they don't own put together. They essentially put it out and say, pay us, give us whatever you want. If, if that number is zero, you can have it for zero. But, but they're doing all right because it's this, it's this weird like gift economy that's, that's happening as a result of the legal structure. So I, I, it'll be interesting to see what this turns into. I love how, uh, I love how we go on tangents on this show. And, and this is a prime example, this episode here. And I love how we always come back because we talk about books, audio books, movies, all this kind of stuff, different media. We it always comes down to get rid of this DRM and all this rights crap. We just want to <laughs> buy your stuff. We just want to buy your stuff. Take our money. Yeah. <laughs> it all it all I, comes I, down to the, the passion that we have for this. Otherwise, we all wouldn't be sitting here in front of our computers tonight. That's right. <laughs> I think I, I I think one I think Brian makes an. A, a good point. I, th- I think part of it is a lot of the kids who may have been <clears throat> utilizing Napster, shall we say, are probably now 10, 15 years later content creators themselves and are seeing, you know, f- seeing it from the other side. And, and I think maybe some awareness there and some maybe bringing back some balance to the force. Well, I think also we got to understand that uh, a lot of people that enjoy media and were stealing it, people that were downloading Firefly on Pirate Bay, and then, you know, we're all upset when Firefly wasn't on the air anymore, you know, because God knows how many actual, according to Nielsen, how many actual viewers they had. They didn't count the, you know, 5 million, you know, online, you know, Pirate Bay downloaders. I got to give major props to Sir Jamie showing up instantly with a Napster shirt on. Very well done, sir. Yes, it's like magic. <laughs> did, did, Thank you. Did, you. did you steal that shirt? Hey, hey, Brian, get back to the, the scam school. So uh, the, the, the difference that you had between uh, doing uh, the digital version, which I believe you did yourself with your team. Yes, uh, yes. It was uh, my team, of course, John Tilton, <laughs> the two of us. <laughs> okay. So, but you guys used, I believe, Vook.com for that? Yeah, V-O-O-K, Vook.com. Uh, and by and large, we were super satisfied with it. Their whole system is one where you... Uh, Basically, you create the book only once in their system and you click one button and it ports it and formats it correctly for iTunes, ports it and formats it correctly for, for Amazon and for, for the, uh, the, the Barnes & Noble Nook store. Uh, they really understand that there's a massive problem. If you try to do any kind of fancy formatting for uh, certainly on the Amazon side, the Amazon uh, – dot mobi format is a is a hot mess super hard to even take a very simple story and and put it with any kind of formatting but vook really does make it simple and they've been uh, they've been very very useful for us especially because they handle the payments and everything like now like uh you know quarterly they uh, they give me an accounting of how many books i sold and when and where and then send you a check okay so they they handle the actual distribution as well not just the the 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. They handle all the uh, the paid disbursements and uh, and their tracking utilities are phenomenal. It looks really good. It looks like we have a priest joining us. So we might just take a quick break and we'll come back with Father Robert Balliser, Paul O'Connor. You'll never guess what, who, which priest it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brian Bushman, everybody. We'll be right back after these messages. Does anyone say that anymore after these messages? I am Valak Barak from DrWhoSociety.com. You are listening to The Book Guy Show. Continue or you will be exterminated. And this is Richard Goodship, author of The Camera Guy on Amazon, and you're listening to The Book Guys. And we're back. We lost the professor, but we gained the priest. We gained Father Robert Balliser. How are you, Padre? Pretty good. I, by the way, I like that slogan. We lost the professor, but we gained a priest. That's right. <laughs> a Jesuit, no, no less. Yes, yes. And actually, that's, uh, that's pretty much what I've been doing the last couple of days. I've been telling every different type of news outlet exactly what a Jesuit is. And now I'm holed up in a hotel in Orlando, splitting my time between covering a tech conference and talking to like EWTN. It's a very so, weird time. I was watching. So you're in hell. <laughs> I am in hell. Orlando, Florida. My goodness. Seriously, hell. if it wasn't for the Magic Kingdom and Hogwarts right next to me, I don't think anyone would ever go to this godforsaken swampland. Have you made it out to the uh, Harry Potter uh, thing over at Universal? I may, I may have come in a day early, and I may have known someone who did the Ollivander's wand show, who may have broken the rules and picked a man over the age of fourteen to be oh. the Harry Potter. So I got to hold the wand. Very cool. Very cool. Oh my god, that may have been freaking amazing. And uh, I'll tell you this, Fred, this is not a may. This is a fact. Uh, they knocked it out of the park on that whole Wizarding World of Harry Potter exhibit. Man, you walk in there. I mean, it's. I, I remember walking in there. It was 90 degrees, and somehow I felt cool because there was, you know, it looked like there was snow everywhere. Right. It, it, it's weird because I, I saw the same thing in the adults who were walking in with me with no children. You didn't, you didn't know if it was cool <laughs> yeah. to be there. It's like it feels kind of pervy, kind of wrong. But after 10 minutes, you totally get into it. <laughs> and it's hey. witchcraft. Witchcraft. Hey, let's guys, let's get right into new jingle. What's on your Kindle? What's on your nightstand? What are you reading? Uh, Father Robert Ballester, what's on your Kindle nightstand? What are you reading? I'm actually doing a couple of things. So I've got the, uh, the last book of the um, uh, Hunger Games trilogy to go through and, on Audible. So that, I've been listening to that on the plane. I've been doing a lot of travel, so that's pretty much most of my day. Uh, but then I also picked up a new techno thriller that uh, I, I listened to like the first 10 minutes. It kind of caught my attention. It's called Zero Day by uh, Jeff, I think it's Aiken. And basically, it's uh, it's like one of these worst-case scenario techno-cyber thrillers where we lose control of everything technological and the bad guys take over. Uh, so, yeah, basically, I'm spending my days in Pulp Fiction. Brian Brushwood, anything new on your uh, nightstand? Oh, my gosh. Uh, first of all, let me, let me get you guys to settle a debate for me because you guys are book guys, and I get annoyed. I'm a, I'm a busy dude, and I'm somebody who loves to read uh, and I'm crazy for the audible.com. And there's one thing that drives me nuts is when I say I read that book 
And people are like, uh, they're like, oh, you you read it? And I was like, I was like, well, I mean, Audible. And they act like somehow like, oh, so you didn't read it? Like like somehow the act of visually translating the printed word into an imaginary ver- voice in your head is some grand accomplishment that I should be proud of. Like, can we just like me personally? I read the freaking book, all right? And I'm yeah. going to say that when it comes to fiction, yeah. I probably experienced it better than you did because when I read, my eyes betray me. They jump over large paragraphs and kind of try to see what's happening up ahead of time. Whereas when you do an audiobook, you hear every single word exactly the way they're intended. Where, where do you guys weigh in on that? Uh, you know, St- Stephen King said it best. I think uh, not in on writing, but uh, I think an intro to another book. But he said that, he prefers that his readers would listen to the audiobook because, like you said, you get distracted for a moment. You you know you miss two sentences, or there's speed readers that skim over parts. And he likes it because he said every word I wrote is put directly into your head. It's an exact copy by telepathy of my story into your brain. And yeah, I have to agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and I. I, there's also a Latin phrase, believe it or not, for people who argue the argue the merits of listening to a book versus reading a book, and uh, I believe it's habemos douche. If you if you argue <laughs> that you are a douche, <laughs> does that wait? Does that make it explicit? <laughs> uh, I, I already, you know what, Padre, you weren't here for the first part. I think I already said shit. <laughs> it could late. be wrong. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So with that in mind, understand that I'm that I'm uh, reading, and I guess I'll use air quote for the for the habemos douches out there who say it's not reading. Um, uh, I just finished uh, Fist Stick Knife Gun, which I heard uh, recommended on the Freakonomics podcast. That I thought was good. Uh, I'm about to start Dreams and Shadows by my buddy uh, C. Robert Cargill, formerly of Spill.com, and uh, uh, the the writer of uh the fantastic um oh, what was the horror movie he did during during the oh wait you bought it father robert didn't you or did, or, or you what was jury it told, uh, jury sinister. made me buy i i can't it's not on my device sinister. i can't remember it sinister sinister, sinister. thank sinister. you thank you thank you yes uh but right now i'm reading the disappearing spoon which i really dig it's it's a poetic kind of um ode to every element on the periodic table it tells the stories of of love, of betrayal, of combat, of of discovery. Of uh, every single element has these fantastic stories about how it was theorized about and then discovered, or uh, you know how something was was commonly used turned out to be poisonous. Um, it's it's gorgeous. I'm loving it so far. I'm only in the beginning of it, but uh, you know just the opening about. Uh, you know, the, the nature of the noble gases and about how if you think about, if you ascribe motivations to each of the elements, you have the noble gases that have all eight of their orbits full or whatever. Uh, but then you've got, you know, certain, there's almost alliances made between different elements who some of them need an extra electron and other have an extra electron and how they come together and what happens when they form these compounds. Uh, it's exquisite, totally loving it so far. Wow, I'm gonna put you a know, link up uh, on the screen. That sounds great. That's gonna go on run my short list. Yeah, I like that. Disappear- Disappear- disappearing spoon was it? Yes. Uh, let me get. Let me give you the the author. It's the disappearing spoon by Sam Keens, K E A N. Now, oddly enough, I'm I'm writing an autobiography about my struggle with overeating, also called the disappearing spoon. 
<laughs> you may want to rethink that title, Father Robert. <laughs> hey, pa Paul O'Connor from the Long Box Graveyard. What's in your long box? That sounds weird. What's in your long box? What's going on? <laughs> I, I do occasionally read books that don't have pictures in them. Um, <laughs> it's a shame he rang off because uh, uh, Professor Allen was giving me grief in email when I told him the book I'm reading now, My Hand of God, is Moby Dick. He said, no, nobody reads Moby Dick. People claim to read Moby Dick because you know they want to look smart or whatever. But I, I am reading Moby Dick. I'm not reading the classics illustrated version. I'm reading a, a high-tech <laughs> version on my, on my Kindle here, according to which I'm like 34% of the way through the book. Um, and, it, and it's tremendous. Uh, I'm reading a lot of other things, too. I, I don't know about you guys. Um, I have a real hard time reading linearly. I can't read anything from beginning to end. I'm always taking – I've always got a stack of books. I'm moving from one to the next. And, and I rationalize this in my head by saying, you know, lots of people have read Moby Dick. But nobody has read Moby Dick and then read Fantastic Four number 184 <laughs> and then gone to Robert Parker's Looking for Rachel Wallace and then back to Moby Dick. I mean, that order has never been equaled by anybody on the planet. That's unique to me. Uh, you know, That's I, the way I, I don't see any, anything at all wrong with that. We all do it with our Netflix accounts. You know, we'll leave off season three of uh, you know, Arrested Development, watch an episode of Doctor Who, and then go watch some something else. Uh, reading, I don't really do that with uh, multiple books but i will listen to one on on audible in audio and have a, a physical book for when i have you know feet up you know scotch in your hand time but you know when i'm uh, you know traversing through my daily turmoil that is my life uh, it's audible oh well okay. so as you read moby dick if i can make a suggestion uh, if you if you're while you're out jogging or something, if you want to do the audiobook, which of course is how I did it, but the moral lives of animals is a book that's all about um, examining the morality of, of 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 different animals. And one of the themes throughout the whole thing is it talks about Moby Dick and about how there are um, uh, different attitudes. Captain Ahab believes that Moby Dick is an evil being who has decided to take his leg and, and is this thing. Whereas, uh, 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 I don't know if it's Ishmael or who's this uh, Starbuck is the second in command, right? I haven't That's read right. it, but whereas, whereas Starbuck, Starbuck looks at, uh, Moby Dick as an automaton who can't be held accountable for what he did. Like, what does it matter if he took your leg? He's not he's just a dumb animal. And, uh, and it keeps going back to that theme as it explores and talks about all these scientific studies with chimpanzees, with dogs, uh, you know, to, to evaluate what does it mean to be moral and what does it mean to be moral in the animal world? And are the, the, the core question it keeps coming back to is Ahab right or is Starbuck right? So it might be fun for you to read that while you're reading uh, Moby Dick. That's groovy. I'll check that out. As Spock would say, fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, I want to take some time out to say that, uh, to remind everybody that any of these books we're talking about, they're probably on Audible, 125,000 titles. And all you got to do is go to bookguys.ca slash audible or audibletrial.com slash bookguys. And you can get any book we're talking about right now for free to try for one month with a one month trial. We're also brought to you by, don't forget, freehollowbooks.com. That's when I ask Sir Jimmy, what's being hollowed out this week or what are you reading? What's on your Kindle? Oh, look at that. It's the jet fighter pilot himself, Dan Hampton. Oh, did we finally do it, Sir Jimmy? This is what he wanted, I believe. He, he wanted to be able to fit a, a flask inside of Viper Pilot. Well, this is almost done. Actually, it's, it's in the process of being finished. So, yes, yes. Yeah, this will be in the mail 
this week headed to the secret bunker location where where pilots go. No, that's cool. I, I see that unfinished there. Do you sometimes just stop because there's a cool graphic, you know, on the on the back page? Well, sometimes sometimes you get done and and you still haven't glued this part down yet. Yet and and uh, your wife's going dinner's ready and you and you hollow it out a little more and then she comes back she says, it's getting cold and then you have to stop so <laughs> roger that that's hey, it on my uh thing tonight here we go uh, this is what i'm listening to this week passage by justin cronin i you guys know i loves me an end of the world book believe me the world ends here we were talking vampires last week and when ha we had johnny heller on this starts off as you know a bioterror thing goes into a vampire goes into a like every other book it's it's a struggle against the darkness but in in passage it is literally a struggle against the darkness we have the last remaining you know human civilization like a hundred people in a camp literally trying to keep the light on to keep the vampires away and i'm only halfway through i will bring this to the table next week fascinating great read actually good pick for your first audible read because we're looking at about 30 hours of entertainment for ten dollars Hi, Mrs. Sir Jimmy. Um, I have to issue uh, a retraction. Uh, when dinner's ready, I believe it is said quite a bit, I don't know. Nicer. Nicer, sexier. Um, it's something like, honey, dinner's ready. <laughs> okay. Not the way he said it. Okay, yes. There you go. Retraction. Yeah, Sir Jimmy. See, that does you. not happen at the Brushwood residence. <laughs> Brian runs that house with an iron fist. <laughs> I wish such a thing was remotely possible. Are you kidding me? <laughs> hey, Sir Jimmy, I'm glad that you're there because we're going to do this. Welcome to The Prize of Genza. All right, guys, we got our first video in from Kevin the King Lawler, who sent us in this review of episodes one, two, and three of Star Wars. So that is that is Kevin's review of episode one, two, and three. So far, he's in the he's in the winning, he's in the running here. And like I said, every week I'm going to add something to the prize aganza. So we still have the two audiobooks, two audiobooks from Brilliance Audio, the prize aganza box, fancy cardboard box we have. This week I'm adding this graphic novel version of Fahrenheit 451 going in the prize aganza box. Next week, a big, big prize is going in. Send those videos in to newsroom at me.com. At the end of April, you're going to get the whole box, the pallet, the shipping container. I don't know how far this is going to go. If any of our guests or hosts want to add in prizes, you're more than welcome to. Uh, I think next week it's going to be an electronic gadget that's going in. Send those videos in, newsroom at me.com. You could win. Just saying. And so, I, Jimmy, I was just about to ask if you were the only one permitted to add something to the private extravaganza oh, box no, because anyone. I have ready to add a, an airline bottle what? of Bacardi rum and uh, a hotel key. So, oh, here, here. send them in. Welcome them to in. Prize Agenza. That is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> I'll say this much. I need me a screen cap of Father Robert holding up the mini Bacardi and this hotel room key. I'll Photoshop a hooker in the oh, background. No. no, I just realized that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Hey, Sir Jimmy, oh, last week you, you were uh, last last week, Sir Jimmy, you were uh, my ceramic uh, red solo cup here. I got one for you, buddy. He's not listening. I got that for you, buddy, Sir Jimmy. I'm putting you in the mail tomorrow. Okay, I got you, I got you. And don't forget, we do have a, a free hollow book that's in the prize box. That's right. This is going nuts. It's going to get stopped at the border because of uh, Padre's uh, rum, I think. But you never know. I did, I did get a bottle of wine all the way to John C. Dvorak for coming on the show. He's supposed to come on the show. <coughs> Dvorak. <coughs> Hello. Douchebag. Oh, here, uh, here we go. Here we go. Douchebag. <laughs> we'll de-douche him when he comes on the show. Not a problem. Yeah. Yes, of course. Habemos douchebag. That, you know what? I already wrote it down. That's... I wrote it down. That's show title. Done. Done. <laughs> Book news. Found a trick here, Sir Jimmy. You can trick Siri into converting iBooks into audiobooks. I'm going to post what? a link on the site. Here's what you got to do. Start off by setting Siri to read your books aloud to you. You go to Settings General. Scroll down to Accessibility. Tap speak selection. Now slow down the speaking rate a bit just to make her a little bit more natural sounding. Then turn on highlight words so that you can see where Siri is reading in the book. Now open up iBooks, open the book you want to hear, tap the uh, AA button at the top, um, top right of your iBook display, and then tap on themes. Of the three choices, select scroll. Next, tap a word in the book to select it. Then while holding your finger down on the drag handle, scroll down to all the text as far as you want. Once you've selected that text, a menu appears and tap speak. The moral of the story right, here, Padre, is they I need to add everything this. Everything you just said. <laughs> Let me I'm I'm doing this on my own uh on my own book right now, Scam School Book One. Let me see if it works. I can't believe you managed to follow along in real time. I would have to slow down my, my speech there to get that. How convoluted is that, Padre? Don't we just Okay, a, okay. I mean, that's cool. It's, it's, you get some geek cred for figuring that out, but what the hell? Oh, my God. Who, who took the time to figure that out? Are you kidding me? That's got to be one of those leaks from a developer of Apple. It, that, that was not some geek who was just randomly no. hitting buttons until it worked. This, is, this goes back to what we were talking about last week, Padre, the DRM and uh, the rights issues where having the book read aloud to you is a whole different set of rights and you know licenses. So that's, and you have to hold it over your head and shake yep. it three times and then hold it upside down and speak a phrase in Latin and then it, read it. Why is this, no, not, please. why is this not a single button on the screen of every book reader around? We just press the button. I don't All right. Know. So along this same line, because, of course, this is one of the accessibility features. Uh, I just had my mind blown this morning because my assistant, John, uh, showed me an app that you can uh, you enter accessibility mode. For uh, for blinds, uh, blind folks, and so like uh, you touch around and it describes what button you're touching, and you double click to to access it. But then you um freaking you take a photo of things, and then it uh, it describes to you what it is that you are you took a picture of. Oh, that is cool. That is cool. 
Wow. Now, if you could do that continuously in Google Glass, that would be a pretty cool killer feature. Yeah, actually, that's a really good point because, like, some of it, is, some of it is algorithms are able to um, take, uh, you know, describe it. But then other other times, you know, if, if the algorithm can't figure it out, they got to kick it over to a human who sort of writes down like it's an abstract painting or you know this is a baby that kind of thing. Now, I, I would love that if it also uh, had a sense of humor. Like, as you're walking down a street, it'll say something like, businessman, drug user, douchebag, princess. You know, yes. And, yeah, and I, some, I some people will be all three, Program, right? Very various levels of judgmentalness in <laughs> there, right. racism <laughs> or whatever. Hey, it's too bad Professor Allen left because uh, last week he was talking about how a lot of his students will either download or purchase physical textbooks from other countries because they're cheaper there. You can buy that textbook. For five bucks in Guatemala, and it's, you know, $295 in Canada, the U.S., uh, the Supreme Court ruled yesterday that textbooks and goods made and sold abroad can be resold online and in discount stores without viol violating any U.S. copyright law. So I think textbooks are going to get a lot more expensive in Guatemala <laughs> starting next week, I think. Wait a minute. You mean I have the right to resell something that I physically own? Okay, this is news to me, Brian. Really, I don't well, know what's happening. Know. Well, well, nuts. you know what? The the concept here is like the DVD region codes, where uh, because they can't sell a textbook for three hundred dollars in Nigeria because three hundred dollars is like the entire village's you know monthly income, they you know they will still let them buy that textbook for only you know two dollars. So they're trying to keep that separate so that I can't go online to you know the Nigerian Amazon store and buy it for two bucks. Isn't the textbook business the next music business as far as, you know, we were talking about how uh, the, the Napster generation uh, revolted against the obscene profits of the music business and turned that, you know, stormed the barricades and turned that business upside down. Isn't, uh, isn't textbooks is the place we should really go fight the power next? Because, I mean, these are the guardians of, of knowledge and the authors deserve to be compensated. But, man, if there's ever been uh, a, a publishing industry that's protected by gatekeepers with artificial levels of profit, it's got to be textbooks. It's just brutal. Well, but, but keep in mind on the flip side, like uh, uh, try this on for size. Imagine that the model for textbooks is applied to uh, to what we see with um, uh, prescription drugs. You know, you have these companies that invest billions and billions of dollars in research and development, hoping for the one drug that can you know cure HIV or whatever. Uh, and then they're but they're also aware, like now that we've solved it, we have to maximize profit to recoup our losses and our investment. Here in America, we know that we could sell this for $69 an injection, but there's no way we're going to get that in Nigeria. So we'll sell the exact same vaccine for a, a buck 99 over there because that's enough to cover our costs and still do good. Um, you could make the argument that textbooks are just trying to do the exact same thing. They're trying to maximize education, which means uh, extracting the, the appropriate amount of level of profit from wealthier societies like the United States and also getting that same information out to less educated and poor societies at a reduced rate. I'm sorry, I can see that, but I think you know the other thing with the pharmaceutical business is that the, the the successes have to pay for the failures, and it's an experimental business, and there's a lot of failures and long trials before these things come to market, and significant costs to recoup. I don't think that's necessarily the model on the textbook side, but I certainly have no objection to uh, to markets paying whatever a market will bear, and those markets can be partitioned internationally. Uh, but uh, you know, if we've outsourced our jobs. <laughs> 
right? It doesn't seem it, it seems a, a short walk to say, well, we should insource our education, and if uh, if you can get a textbook overseas less expensively than you can locally, I think there needs to be some return to the mean in terms of the cost of these uh, these books. We all understand the sliding scale. We all understand making people pay what the market will bear. We understand that someone in Puerto Rico is not going to be able to pay the same for a textbook as someone in the United States. That makes sense to us. But what it comes down to most of the time is a measure of goodwill. How much are you willing to believe that the company selling you the goods that you're buying is actually making a good faith gesture in doing that? Or do you believe that they're trying to squeeze every last cent of profit? We used to think, we used to give companies more benefit of the doubt, but we are now in an era where, you know, with the advent of mass communication and of journalistic exposés, most of us believe that, yeah, the, the companies aren't trying to do the right thing. They're just trying to do the right thing for them. Yeah, so take that, companies. <laughs> to the barricades, my brothers. That's right. <laughs> well, like, let, me, let me give you a counterexample. Uh, right now, I'm, I'm involved in a, uh, a project where it's, it's World Youth Day. There's going to be you know, 4 million people going down to Brazil. It's, we're going to be there for the, the Pope's Mass. And I've got an organization that's going to be bringing about 10,000 people from all around the world. Well, the way we have it set up is the pilgrims from first world countries pay a higher fee. And we're, we're, we are upfront about that. We tell them, look, you're, you're subsidizing the travel and the program costs for the pilgrims from, from less well-off right. countries. They're okay with that. And they're okay with it because we're upfront with them. We tell them exactly what the money is going to be used for. And they think it's a good cause. Now, put a company, a corporation that's, that's built on profit, based on profit, into the exact same place. You're not going to get that same measure of goodwill. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you what, Father Robert. I mean, that's the kind of statement that is that I would have blindly... Uh, ten years ago, but but watching the the popularity of philanthropy among the mega rich and young in in America has really kind of shaken me up. Like I I don't know that it is disingenuous for a company to do good. Like like and take Bill Gates, who was absolutely vilified fifteen years ago. Every website had that that horrible animated gif of of Bill Gates's face turning into the devil because it was just obvious Bill Gates is the right. devil and now uh meanwhile like 100 years from now he will not be remembered for Microsoft he'll be the, remembered as the man who saved a billion lives by ending right. malaria you know and so it's like i i and again that's that's a person but but i'm going to take that same mentality and say that uh, that I don't know for sure. It's hard for me to knee jerk and say they're just doing it for themselves, you know. Especially since we've seen uh, the the rise in popularity of socially conscious corporatism. Right. Well, it's a pendulum, and it can, it can swing both ways, and it, it typically goes back and forth. There'll be there'll be periods of trust and periods of distrust. We're just in a period where basically, if you're American, you don't trust anybody right now. That's fair enough. Pretty much. Hey guys, while we have Paul O'Connor from Longbox, we might as well. Talk about some comic books, comic books, comic books. Hey, yes. Paul, I'm not sure. Do you use the Comixology app or are you a strictly a physical comic book guy? Oh, well, I have an extensive uh, accumulation. I won't call it a collection, but I have an accumulation of paper books. But I, I'm also a, a convert to digital. I read quite a few digital comics as well. So uh, a, a couple days ago, Comixology, through, uh, Marvel through Comixology, offered 700 classic Number one issues through the Comixology app. And they were only going to do it for like three or four days. And they just paused it because it crashed the Comixology servers. They could not expand. 
they could not get enough you know cloud amazon servers online uh it's on hold they're gonna do it again soon uh it looks like overwhelming success for this i mean this is the whole model of hey first one's free <laughs> you know you're gonna love it kid first one's free yeah that's right padre get it right into you i was ready to download all 700 and then uh, it's gone yeah unfortunately just their their server infrastructure was not up to the demand um which which answers a question for me because i've long been an advocate of freemium monetization for uh digital comics uh this is a little pet project of mine and i i make apps for a living i i understand the freemium market i've spent the last three years with my own money in the market figuring out how do you make a profit on free because the problem with free is it's too expensive that's how i open my co the talk of the conferences right you have to find a, in, the, in a race to zero market you have to find a way to make free pay and i believe that um you know your next billion comic book readers are going to be digital readers they're going to be reading their comics on ipod touches and on and on ipads and of course on android tablets as well and you need to reach them the way you reach them is that the product has to be free and then you have to find ways to monetize free either through advertising or through upsells into into premium versions of their of the the material. And the problem with Comixology right now, which is doing a great job for Marvel and DC, is that they are wedded to the iTunes monetization scheme, which requires that games uh, the products be sold in tiers of ninety nine cents. Ninety nine cents is too high a minimum price for most comic books, which should be sold for nickels or quarters. And but. What I saw this weekend or this past weekend when their servers failed during the South by Southwest promotion is that their backbone isn't prepared to support a freemium economy even if the monetization side of it were figured out. So I'm sad to say it looks like digital comics are still kind of caught in the, in, the, in the backwaters a little bit, maybe in the dark ages as far as uh, the new global economy is concerned. But taking a step back from that, I think you have to be very encouraged that there was so much interest in those titles that their servers got crashed in the first place. Hopefully they can get their back end sorted out and, and get some comics into people's hands. Because when it's working, the Comixology project, product is a very good one. And uh, the reading experience is, is, is good enough that I, I now prefer to buy digitally over in paper or even graphic novel format. Uh, can, can I push on that a little bit? I, I have a question for Paul. Uh, when I was still collecting books when I was younger, I would always get two. I would get one that I read and I would get one that I collect. That's, that's just what you did. And one went straight into the Mylar bag and into the, the temperature-controlled box. Do you think you could have something similar with digital in that the digital version is the one that you read? But I, I, I still feel like I would want a physical copy, a book that I could actually put away that I could, uh, you know, bring out to, into the light every once in a while to, to, to show people I have that issue. Uh, it, it doesn't seem like an electronic version is something that you would really collect and show off. No, see, well, all right, let, let, me, let me flip that around for you. Uh, if you have your own physical stuff, I lose stuff all the time. And one of the things that I love, I mean, capital L-O-V-E about the Steam experience is I no longer have to have a milk crate filled with CDs from 15 years ago for my games. I know it's managed and the games I bought them, they will always be there for me when 10 years from now I'm able to go back and be like, oh, I remember that game, let me load it again. Uh, and it'll be patched automatically and ready to go. In many ways, the virtual the virtual good experience is superior for physical goods because like like I'm looking right now over in this closet right over here are crammed a bunch of uh, – I think we have 2,000 comic books from when I was in high school 
uh, you know, some of them are sort of half crammed in there. I have no idea what condition they're in because I'm the loser idiot who's in charge of managing them. And I've got kids now. So it's hard for me to remember to pay attention to the quality of my comic books and the organization and where they are and all that stuff. Knowing that all that's handled with the comicsology type experience, uh, I, I would say that's even better for down the road when you want to go back and revisit them. I think one of the things that's implicit um, is that the, the the collecting experience will have to change in a digital era. I mean, right now, Father Robert, you are Marvel and DC love you because you're going to double dip. You know, you're going <laughs> to yeah, you're going to adapt their new methodology and grow their digital market, but you're still going to go support your brick and mortar comic book store. You're the guy they're marketing to. You're a lapsed reader, obviously, but if you were reading comics, that's exactly the behavior they want. They want you to buy a paper version and have the digital version. And part of that is because the publishers are wedded. They need to keep alive. They can't cut the legs out from underneath the, the existing print channel. But over time, I think, the, I think the experience in comics will have to shift from collecting to achieving. I think it needs to move into a social platform where it's more about the books you've read, the content you've absorbed, the way you've shared it with other readers, the people you've brought into your networks that are talking and enjoying about the characters the same way that you are. These uh, comic book companies need to move to a point where everybody can have their digital bat cave and invite their friends to come share with them and then develop such a huge mass audience that they can monetize either through advertising or through select premium upsells for specific books or time to release books. You know, we see this in uh, video already. One product, many prices. You, you go to see Avengers day one, you're going to pay $10.50. You're going to go see it in 3D, you're going to pay $15. You're going to get it on pay-per-view, it's going to cost you 9 You get it on a, on a, on a DVD or a Blu-ray, it costs you 20 or, or, or 30 or 40 But people are comfortable with this notion of if you, pay, if you get it day one, it costs you a little bit more than getting it on day five. So comics have a possibility to go that direction as well. It's, it's scary as heck. I, I have friends in the comic book business, and, and you know they... they the, the business has always been very touch and go, and they know that if they make a misstep right now, they could lose the whole franchise. But at the same time, they have to change if they're going to reach new readers. And, and I really think digital is the key to that. Padre, you were saying you, you would buy one to really dig into and read and another to collect. Now, Never opens. Never opens. Stays <laughs> in that bag. These guys tried that. I'm not sure if they still have the service when Magic the Gathering, the collectible card game, when they went digital, what they offered was, you buy this virtual card. Or they're actually selling packs of cards with random cards inside. You buy this virtual card, we're going to take one in mint condition that we just printed. It's only ever going to be printed once with a black border collectible. And we'll put it in a vault for you. It's yours. Now you can play with the digital version of this card. If you ever want your physical cards... You pay the shipping, we'll put all of your cards in a box and mail them off to you. I don't know if that's a model that might work, but if I could, you know, have all my comics, all of your comics shipped to me. In, in my collector mind, I still want to know that, okay, that comic book, that one I covet, the one that, oh my God, it's increasing in value, it's in a special place that I, I physically have access to. There, I mean, I, maybe it's just me. I, I'm kind of mental that way. But... I think electronic format is great for durable goods. As Brian said, uh, you know, be it Steam or be it iTunes or be it the, the Play Store, when I buy something in those stores, I don't have to worry about deleting it or losing it. I, I can always re-download it. I'm good to go. But if it's a collectible good, I think that's a special kind of mental illness that requires yeah. that physical presence. 
In the case of comics, I think you'll just find that that collectability shifts to things that are genuinely collectible. Right now, Marvel, or uh, more, to, more to the point, uh, DC Comics in February sold 300,000, a little more than 300,000 copies of Justice League of America number one, and they did it by driving it with a cover gimmick where it shipped with 52 variant covers for all the states in the United States and, and, uh, and Puerto Rico plus uh, you know, another, another version. No so Ontario? that artificially <laughs> drove the collectability of that product, but it was printed to order. It was, it was pre-ordered so they knew exactly how many to print. Any collectability there is illusory. Now, if yep. you can get a hold of the original art for Justice League of America number one, or a commission from an artist, or an original script maybe that's autographed by the by the writer, although nobody pays writers, right? Uh, that I think is where your collectability aspect of or your your collectible instincts need to go in the comic book spaces towards things that are genuinely collectible and scarce. But we need to wean ourselves off this idea of of uh, manufactured collectability, either in collectible card form or comic books. You know what, guys? We have run so late tonight. I know we're, I'm keeping you guys here all night long. I think i got to play the lullaby. Brian looks like he wants to just reach through the screen and, and choke me. What? <laughs> I'm just kidding, Brian. Hey, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Paul Connor, Longbox Graveyard. Brian Rushwood, NSFW. Padre even made it all the way from a hotel room in Wahoo, Nebraska, or wherever he is. <laughs> we'll see you next week, folks. Same book time, same book channel. Stay tuned, book readers and book listeners. Book Guy Show will return next week. Same book time, same book channel.